0: This is the fifth Sunday of Easter, and it's the second week in the Easter uh, period, in the great 50 days, when we move from reading in the Bible and in the Gospels, uh, resurrection appearances, and we read now in all of the readings, really the early church. Remember, I talk all the time about the history of salvation. So now we're talking about how we appropriate the resurrection and live the resurrection faith and what are some of the things that are involved in this. And the two readings that I want to preach on are the reading from 1 Peter, uh, which is uh, compelling and repeats some things that appear elsewhere in the Bible. And then in John's Gospel, chapter 14, which is the uh, part or at the beginning of what is known in John's Gospel as the farewell discourse. Jesus is dealing now with the separation anxiety of the apostles uh, as he is ready to leave them. And this was this was spoken at the Last Supper. So it was before his crucifixion that the farewell discourse goes. And it runs from chapter 13 to chapter 17 in John's Gospel. So more on that in a minute. Remember to the great 50 days of Easter, the ground zero of the liturgical year, for all churches that have a liturgical year, uh, we are introduced to the three great theological ideas that will now influence all of the liturgical year, God's light, God's life, and God's love. And we see that made present uh, in the readings today. First Peter, uh, if Peter wrote it, would have been written no later than 68 AD because he was killed maybe even before that, but somewhere between 62 and 68 in Rome. So he would have had to have written his epistle then. The epistle that is attributed to Peter, that's called Second Peter, uh, has long been thought to be the, the most recent piece of literature in the New Testament. So it dates something in the neighborhood of 100 or 120, could be as late as 125. So that definitely is not Petrine, <laughs> as they say. But this one might be. And Peter, the author of the 1st Peter, is giving us in this letter an extended baptismal homily. He's speaking about one of the ways the church appropriated the Easter faith, and that is to focus on the sacrament of baptism as the means by which the community of faith is connected one to another and connected to God, and to see that in the baptismal liturgy we, and in the baptism itself, we see how we can live a life that is congruent with God's purposes. So two themes emerge in the letter today. The first is something we've read about in the Gospels or heard referred to, and that is Jesus Christ is the chief cornerstone. Peter quotes from the, the Old Testament, from the Psalms in this reading. So it represents the continuity of the sacred testimony of the people of God. And Jesus is seen to be now the, the support on which we as Christian people uh, wishing to live the resurrection faith, the possibility of new life transformation, growth, all of the terms that you hear, that Jesus Christ is at the center of that in that way. He is the chief cornerstone. Um, it's interesting these days that in the, in, in the studies of language, you know, um, Jesus is always referred to as a carpenter. And the word in the, in the New Testament that refers to him in that is tecton which could also mean contractor Joseph his father but it also could mean stonemason so it's an interesting illusion that Jesus now is the chief cornerstone and using that terminology in uh, the ancient near east might have had uh, interesting resonances in the community So Jesus is the chief cornerstone, and then the next one, which I think is the most important, and that is Peter refers to all of us as a royal priesthood. So to use the fancy terminology, Dr. Reginald Fuller would say, this is the locus classicus (laughs) for the doctrine of the priesthood of all believers. So I want to say a word to you about this, because um, that's something uh, that needs some explaining. So this might not be that interesting. I worried about it, but you'll just have to take it. (laughs) The Protestant reformers in the 16th century were reacting against some uh, um, over-the-top understandings of what we now call the ministerial priesthood. Moi, (laughs) Mother McNeil, the ministerial priesthood, the ordained priesthood, and the problem that they were having was the idea that uh, we needed to continue to have a priesthood of this type, and the belief was that Jesus somehow came and died on the cross and everything to get rid of all that. So Luther and a number of other Protestant reformers said, the priesthood that is bestowed on us, as Peter uh, said today, the locus classicus, the centerpiece, uh, is in everybody, all of the baptized. Well, here's the thing. Everybody agrees that that is true. Anglicans, Roman Catholics, Eastern Orthodox, and the Protestants. But we believe that uh, there are three priesthoods in the church. There is the priesthood of all believers, the royal priesthood. There is the cultic priesthood, the ordained. And there is the priesthood of Christ that we participate in. So, that means that the royal priesthood's focus in the world is ethical and not cultic, but that we have believed because we believe in the Bible and in the tradition with a capital T, and in our human reason and experience that we also possess a cultic priesthood who preside at the liturgy. Now, what we've done in the last 30 or 40 years in the liturgy is renewed its understanding to really mean work of the people. And so that means that we have expanded the roles of all the priesthood in the, in the uh, celebration of the liturgy. You all are part of this. The presider is merely standing there as the president. That's why the new terminology is being used. It is, we say, celebrant in the prayer book, but the fact is that could imply that it is the priest celebrating the Eucharist. And we're all celebrating the Eucharist together as part of the royal priesthood. And those of us within the body who have in some way uh, been called to do the other thing are there too. So we're all doing it together. And by virtue of that, we're participating in the priesthood of Christ. And why is that important? I don't want to sound like the guy who predicted that the world's going to come to an end, but if you start connecting the dots, this vindicates the epistle to the Hebrews because it talks to some degree about the high priesthood of Christ and how we participate in that and what the nature of that priesthood was and how it brought to an end the necessity for the sacrificial priesthood at the temple. So all of those things now somehow get connected. So this may be a little bit, you know, I'm only getting about 10% of this, but... um, you're part of a royal priesthood. That's the takeaway from this. But we have plural views is the other thing to take away from this. And it's not either or, it's both and. So that's what my, my view on that matter is. But perhaps more importantly, we go now to John's Gospel and the Farewell Discourse. This is a reading, by the way, that we read often at funerals. Often people, this is the gospel that they pick that they want to have read at a funeral or a memorial service. And I expect it's because uh, Jesus uh, says in this section of the farewell discourse, in my Father's house are many dwelling places. Those of us who have been around the church for a fair amount of time remember the King James Bible or as one woman at St. Michael's in Tucson, Arizona referred to it as the St. James Bible (laughs) she was the same one who came out one day and said, Father Brewer if our Lord knew what you were doing to his prayer book he would turn over in his grave (laughs) (laughs) Needless to say, she was conservative. (laughs) The King James Bible says, in my father's house are many mansions. Sometimes Father Emerson and I say mansions instead of dwelling places, even in the new version, just because. (laughs) But I thought, you know, just for safety's sake, I'd look it up in the Greek uh, text. And uh, what is... In the Greek, it says, it's the noun for abiding, the verb, to abide. Abode, (laughs) right? There are many abodes. And I think probably that's a better translation, particularly uh, in the ancient Near East. And think about Judaism and uh, all of the religious practice of the age and people at certain times of the year building booths and dwelling places to celebrate certain kinds of things, a place, a location. And what the Savior is speaking about here in terms of dwelling place has two meanings. One is in the future as a promise, but also the abode where God dwells in you. And so in John's gospel today, there are three things that are in in this farewell discourse. The promise of abiding with God and how we appropriate that and understand it. A sure and clear way to God is the second theme. And the third is that we all have the power to sustain the community after the Savior has gone. Next week we're going to talk about the big thing we get, the Comforter, the Spirit, the Holy Spirit of God. But that's also present here today in in this reading. So I've talked about the promise of the abiding with God and how we might understand that as we think about it. And the other one is, again, the example that I spoke about last week coming up here. I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to me except through the Father. Now, there are a lot of Christians who believe that we have uh, lost a substantial leg up in our evangelism because we're not beating that drum as Episcopalians. And there are Episcopalians, by the way, who think that those Episcopalians who demur from being too hard-edged about that are ruining the church. That you simply have to tell people there is no way to God except through Jesus. And it appears that that's what it says. But you know, if it, if, if it means what it says that way, then it constitutes uh, a polemic by the author of John's gospel. Have you ever heard that word, polemic? An aggressive attack on or refutation of the opinions or principles of another. Well, who is it? Who's being attacked? Well, it could be the Jews, it could be the followers of John the Baptist, who were still around and are still around, the Mandeans. Who believed that John the Baptist was the Messiah, or it could mean some kind of uh, wacko groups that have begun to emerge. Some call them Gnostics or the pneumaticoi. You know, pneumatic. Right, spirit is new. It means spirit in Greek. So they believed that Jesus really wasn't a human being; he was a spirit. That all this was just sort of, you know, we're living in a, it isn't real. It's all, you know, he's like a, Jesus was like a pointillist painting. You know, you can put your hand through him if you you decided that you wanted to do that, right? An overly spiritualized view of his words and works and his teaching. Maybe that's the group. And so the author of John's Gospel is saying, you're not going to get there through these, you're going to get there through... Him. I read last week something from Dr. John Macquarie that I'm going to read again because it bears reading uh, in this after this passage about the uniqueness of Jesus Christ and how we how we understand that. I ha- I don't know what's gotten into me, but I'm looking on YouTube now and listening to all these full tilt boogie. Evangelical preachers who have gotten a lot of notoriety recently. There's a guy named Rob Bell who's written a book that has gotten him tossed out of all of the evangelical uh, people who are just, oh, yay, yay. He seems to suggest in the book that everybody's going to get saved. Ay, <laughs> and then you've got John Piper who's a Baptist who is just no compromise and a fellow named So I've been watching all of this, all of this stuff. And when somebody in a panel, they're all sitting up there now, and they seem to like to wear black turtlenecks and glasses that are very antagony. You know? So you know what I mean. So, so we're all there. So the guy who's asking the questions, hand me the questions, I'm going to read, is, uh, do you believe that the only way to salvation is through Jesus Christ? And some of them go, well, yes. And I know that this is going to make a lot of people upset or a lot of people very angry. But you know what? I'm simply not at liberty to alter this. I am not free to do this. It's right there in the black and white letter of the, of the Bible. So I can't, I can't change it. There it is. So what do you do? You know? It's tough, isn't it? Here's Dr. Macquarie. I would have to say that the word unique is not helpful... In discussing the place of Jesus Christ, not only Jesus Christ, but every person is unique. And therefore, so is Muhammad and so is Gautama Buddha. In place of the words rejected, unique, final, absolute, I shall use the expression definitive for Jesus Christ as understood in Christian faith. He is definitive in the sense that for Christians... He defines in normative fashion both the nature of humanity, which he has brought to a new level, and the nature of God, for the divine Logos, expressive being, has found its fullest expression in him. Logos means word in Greek, and expressive being is his word for the second person of the Trinity, Jesus. So when he writes about the Trinity, that's how he refers to it. So that's what that means. This is an affirmation of faith made from within history and not an attempt to pronounce from some vantage point above history. As such, it is content to make an affirmation about Christ and to refrain from negative judgments concerning the truth in other faiths. It recognizes that while Christ possesses fullness And a definitive status, our apprehension of that fullness is always imperfect. So, you know, we say that in the Episcopal Church, when you come in, you don't have to park your brains in the narthex. You need to be able to bring to bear the full force and effect of your intellectual powers on the deep things of Christian faith and belief. And it is not an impious activity to do so. For me, Jesus Christ is my greatest place of safety and assurance. I believe him to be the son of God. That he rose again from the dead. And that I would say that to other people as something that has provided me the opportunity to live a fuller life. And no Christian person should shrink from that responsibility. But you've heard me say to you also that you can do that in many other ways with people and never utter one abstruse piece of religious vocabulary. So, the reading from John's Gospel, in some ways, to me, is enormously comforting. But it is spoken believer to believer. You see the difference? It isn't a polemic or in some way an apologetic thing to say to somebody who is either struggling, doesn't care, doesn't believe, is part of some other uh, faith tradition that has given them life that we somehow need to be exercised endlessly about changing that in relational terms. The last piece maybe uh, dovetails a little bit into this when I said, of course, that the power to sustain the believing community is what Jesus speaks about at the conclusion of this portion of the farewell discourse and what he means there and what John means when he writes this and reproduces this is that you and I begin to find the ways and the means to mature in our prayer life and prayer life is twofold. At least one is public, our participation in the church's worship and what it says and what it does. And in our own internal, spiritual, mental and emotional states. And how we offer those things to God on a daily basis. You know, most of us, when, we, when it's all said and done, often believe in terms of prayer. That the exclusive form of prayer that we're engaged in is petitionary. We're asking gods for stuff. Right? We want something or we believe that God is the great wish-granter in the sky, and then we have to struggle with the fact that the prayers don't get answered, you know? Now, petitionary prayer is a perfectly important part of the life of prayer, but there are... I don't want to get into one of these prayer and its divisions, but, you know, <laughs> there's more than one kind, and so forth. When I taught the kids at St. Michael's School in Tucson, Arizona, in the religion class, we come into the chapel, the little kids in kindergarten, uh, and I'll have them kneel down. So I'd, I'd say to them this. First, tell God that you love it. Then, thank God for all the stuff you have. All the things that you're grateful for. Thank them for your mom and dad, and, your brothers and sisters, maybe, (laughs) (laughs) for all your things, then tell God if there's anything that you've done that you don't think you should have done, that you're sorry about. And then say the Lord's Prayer. I do. That's what I do. Right. In the farewell discourse, what we're speaking about here is uh, the process by which we mature in prayer, and a praying community, both publicly and privately, cr- creates a kind of a glue. That's why we have a prayer chain at St. Luke's, you know. There are people here who are praying on a daily basis for other members of St. Luke's church, you know. So, Tyler DeSantis, who has been deployed now somewhere in the Middle East, right? Is being held up in prayer by everybody here, close to their hearts and up to God. You know, and it can't hurt and it might help. And that's what's being spoken about today uh, by the Savior in this section of the High Priestly Prayer. So, I guess this week, uh, the assignment might be to give thanks to God for being uh, part of a royal priesthood. The royal priesthood is ethical. It's to be lived in the world. We're not a religion that focuses our our priestly life on uh, some ritual activities that are continuously being done like the prayer wheel that you push, you know, and it just keeps going around. Although, don't throw too much cold water on that, I might add. But the fact is that, uh, you know, it's ethical. That's its main thrust. So you're being God's priests in the world in more than one way and making a difference. So give thanks for that opportunity. And remember that the the farewell discourse is, I'm leaving, but I'm always with you. Amen. Amen.